Good morning. Welcome. I extend the welcome to you as well uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we are going through the book of Psalms, just taking a few. That's all we have time for really this summer. But we've, we're backing up to Psalm 9 this morning. If you'll turn with me to that psalm. If you're using the Bible that's in the pew, it's page 451. <clears throat> Now, as you open your bulletin to that next page, this could be really confusing. Um, the left side is what we're going to study this morning. That I've outlined the, the Psalm 9 topically, okay? So these are the topics we're going to deal with. But if you want to, on your own or consider it, move through Psalm you know, verse by verse, that's the order on the right side. And actually the second BCD should have a little mark on them to indicate that they're the copy of the first, but that got lost somehow. But notice it's A, B, C, a D in the middle, and then B, C, and D at the end. So there's some structure there. It took me a while to figure that one out and Maybe it would help you as you're reading through and, and see uh, these. Also, I noticed uh, that judgment, the second B, is, should be 15 through 17, not 5 through 17. Anyway, enough of that. Let's read this uh, amazing psalm and mysterious psalm, and I find very difficult psalm in many respects. And because Psalm 9 and 10 are really one psalm, though they've been divided in our uh, English Bible. I'm going to read just one or two verses into Psalm 10, but we just don't have time to deal with uh, both at once. But I do want to read into it a little bit. First, he begins with praise. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name O Most High, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You've rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has 
made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That's the reading of God's word. Let us seek him in prayer. O Lord God, we come before you asking for your spirit to give us your wisdom. Lord, give us insight in your word by your spirit into some of the ways of God. Lord, how you govern this world, where this world is headed. Some insight, Lord, into your righteousness and your justice, your good decisions that you make in this world. Oh, Lord, we see things so differently at times. We are confused and horrified. Sometimes we're driven to near despair over what happens in this world. Lord, give us hope in you. Hope in the true God who truly is governing all things and bringing them to his final glorious conclusion and restoration. Oh, Lord, enable us better to hope in you. We ask this for the glory of your great name. Amen. So the title, we hope in the righteous God on his throne. I have this title because these are some things that are really underscored in this psalm, constantly underscoring the justice and righteousness of God. Some would translate these words as his faithfulness. Also, when you see the word judgment, I did a, I got off on this word because the Bible itself, or you might say the word of God itself, this is one of the names by which it's called the judgments of God, okay? You can see that a lot in Psalm 119 for when he's describing the word. He'll call them the judgments of God. And I did a pretty extensive study to, to realize that basically the word means decisions. And at first that puzzled me, but then I realized, well, that's what we say. A judge hands down what? He hands down decisions. And so some have, have uh, even had the translation, not his judgments in the earth, but his faithful decisions in the earth. And that helped me a lot to think about all the, you might say, decisions, judgments that God makes. And how the psalmist here says they're always righteous. They're always perfect. And yet when you look around, you just think, ah, I just... Not only do I not see it, I'm grieved so many times by the things that happen in this world. And so this psalm has been a real struggle for me. We've had some other things, as you know, uh, take up our time as a a session in these past couple of weeks uh, that didn't help. But this in itself has been a wrestling match, uh, and I've cried uncle a bunch in it. 
But hopefully we can together look into this idea of God's justice and righteousness. The idea of his being on his throne is prominent. The idea of everything being faithful decisions in all that he does. And especially then that in the final day, everything will be restored. So let's dive into this. We're saying that we hope in the righteous God in the first place because he judges the earth, because he decides things in the earth. He brings, particularly in this part of our study, he brings the decision of judgment on the nations that oppose him. These are the wicked, he says in verse Five and, and don't think so much when he says nations of individual political entities like we understand, but it means all peoples, all groups of people, all powerful collections of peoples, whatever form you say, they are brought to nothing in the final day. Whatever form these people are in, in their opposition toward God, they are made low in the final day. So this section, beginning with verse 3, is, is an anticipation of when all of his enemies will be destroyed. And one of the most striking aspects of this is found in the, the phrase where he says in verse 5, You've blotted out their name forever and ever. And that's also repeated basically in a different way. Verse 6, the very memory of them has perished. And that's parallel with their cities coming to ruin, uh, perishing forever and ever. uh, And that uh, the cities are, are rooted out. The enemy has come to an end. And so this means then that if the very memory is gone, that... God will make the rich and the famous and the powerful everlasting nobodies in his judgment. No one will remember those who have opposed God. No one of them is in the headlines anymore. No one's name is in lights anymore. There are no handprints in the concrete in front of Grauman's Theater, now the TCL Theater, There are no followers on Twitter or Instagram, no hits on uh, YouTube. No one, no one remembers you. It's really a terrible thing, isn't it? And the contrast of those who in the earth were, in many cases, nobodies. The believers, God's own people, who were trashed and treated like garbage again and again, imprisoned killed as just so much refuse in the world as the writer of Hebrews calls us in the in the eyes of the world and yet in Romans 2 both in Romans 2 and 1 Peter we hear these words to describe us in that final day that we will be imbued with glory and honor and immortality and peace And even the word, it doesn't seem possible, praise. We're caught up. We laud and honor God. But then 
God in his grace and mercy as we are associated with Christ, we receive this exaltation of glory and honor forever. While those that oppose God's people are treated as nothing forever in judgment. And so God makes these final decisions in faithfulness. He executes judgment in faithfulness. And when he's anticipating this time where God will fully and ultimately judge the nations... And even the praise with which he begins is an anticipation of the time he will praise him when he receives that deliverance. Because as we, as it goes on, why, because like in verse 10, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10, why do you stand far off? We realize that as you read through it, he's in this situation wondering why, but he's at the same time of asking Why is it this way? He is anticipating the time when he will praise God when all of his enemies will be destroyed. And I think for us as believers in the New Testament context, this most pointedly applies to our spiritual enemies because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following that uh, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against spiritual forces. And so I hope that you will take this particularly to and, and associate it with passages like uh, Romans sixteen twenty, where he says, you will soon trample Satan under your feet or God will soon trample Satan under your feet. Somehow we are involved in that final defeat. So that our true enemies behind any human enemies will ultimately completely be destroyed and ever forgotten. It doesn't mean, though, that human enemies will not be caught up in that destruction. But we're going to see toward the end of our study, there are some, you might say, ameliorations or, or there's, a, there's a mercy that enters our concern for the wicked. Uh, in the context of Christ. Uh, but, but certainly give full vent to these kinds of statements in regard to the spiritual enemies that you face. And that can give you great encouragement that they are going down. You can hope in that progressive defeat against your enemies, your spiritual enemies who would hinder you from every aspect of being like Christ... They are on their way out. They are already under judgment. And it will come sure and completely in that last day. I do want to point out something in this passage that was striking to me. That in verses 3 and 4, for instance, he says, You sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. But in the verse before, he says, they, the enemy, stumble and perish before your presence. Now, we tend to think God on his throne is removed from the situation in some way, that he is distant in some way. He's on his, he's up, we'll say, he's up there on his throne, right? We, we had this talk when we uh, spoke of our father in heaven, 
right? You may remember some of you that we, by saying that, we're not saying he's, you know, distant, he's away, he's in heaven, he's not here. It's a way to say in both cases, whether you're saying sits on his throne or you're saying he's in heaven, he is not bound by any power on earth. He has absolute sovereignty on earth. And in this context, it means that if he is on his throne, his enemies are in his presence. We all have mobile phones, but this is a mobile throne, right? This throne pervades the universe. It's not a throne that's up there. Not If, if you somehow could see it, look out the window, you say, wait a minute, everywhere I look, I see throne, okay? If it had some physical manifestation of that sort. But that's the way you and I must think of that throne, a throne that pervades the universe, that pervades the earth. And so because God is on his throne, he is present in absolute effective power and action to deliver his people at all times. To deliver you at all times, to be with you at all times because he's on his throne and nobody can stop him from being present with you, to minister to you, to care for you, to deliver you, to continue to form you into the image of Christ, no matter what he may allow to come into your life. Nothing will stand in the way of his saving work in your life. And that's what he's about now. This saving work of making you more and more like Christ. More and more drawn to love God and to give yourself away to people. So he is, if he's thrown for us means he is right there. He is right here with me in whatever is happening and nothing can block him out because he is on his throne. Nothing can stop his pervasive presence to work in any way he chooses, every way he chooses. So the one who rules all, the one who is on his throne is with his church throughout the world. He's with every church of his people, every group of his people, every individual of his people at all times because he's on his throne. And in the New Testament context, it is our Lord Jesus Christ who says of himself, now all authority in heaven and earth is mine. And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 1, he's far above all power in the powers in the universe, spiritual or physical. Far above all these powers means that they are no match for him. It means he has absolute control over everything. He does as he pleases, when he pleases, for the ends he pleases. And it's from this position of authority that he can say there at the last verse in the book of Matthew. Surely, therefore, I'm with you always to the end. Why? Because I'm on my throne and my throne is pervasive. And when it when you think of his throne means he's present with me, that's not a passive presence. Right? It's not standing by the wayside presence, a walk on the other side of the street presence, a not get involved presence, 
an uncaring walk away, an onlooker presence. It's supreme, supremely compassionate presence. Always acting, always saving presence. That's what it means for each one of you every day, all day. He never leaves you. He's always acting for you. That can be a huge encouragement if you either, uh, it can be a huge difference in your life either if you have that mentality or you don't have that mentality in a given day. By his grace to have this sense of what he is doing in your life and the presence of his life or not. And as it states in these verses, he always acts with perfect justice and righteousness. And of course, this will not be, it will not have its final manifestation so that all righteousness pervades this earth until God comes to judge the world, as it said again and again in the Psalms and the New Testament. He's coming to judge the world, to decide all good for the world and restore it to perfect peace and beauty. That's, that helps us to understand the goodness of judgment. He's not coming to destroy the earth. He's coming to restore the earth. And yet it's said he's coming to judge the earth. See, so associate judgment with the goodness of God manifesting itself in his decisions and his actions. Judgment is always perfect and good in the hand of God. It's the rescue of a child from kidnapping. It's the, it's the restoration of justice as manifested in our uh, court system, at least at times. Um, and so we look to that day, but in the meantime, it is so difficult because we see terrible injustice on every hand from one individual to another, from various groups, from governments, from courts themselves, from justice systems themselves. And God has given what to us seems just shocking opportunity and power for human beings to inflict injustice on other human beings and great evils. We are grieved over these things. We're sickened at times. Sometimes we're overwhelmed. We're angry. We, we mourn. We cry out in agony over the injustices of this world. But yet, in the midst of this, several things to remember. There are always, in this world, so many acts of justice and righteousness and goodness and rescue on the part of human beings. Christian or non-Christian. So in the midst of brokenness and darkness, even mankind being made in the image of God still pushes its way into so much order and justice that's in this world. We thank God for those kinds of things that happen. And also we have to realize that God allows so many Terrible things to say to, to happen, as C.S. Lewis brought out, that the warning signs are always there. It's a broken place. Things are not right. Things have been ruined. The reminder that human sin has infected and infected. 
infested this creation. To continue to enable us to long for what will come. Even in the midst of that. And I don't, this is where I just can't understand where God's righteousness goes. But in the overall governing of what should and should be done at any point, what should and should not be allowed, how much warning there should be, how much manifestation of righteousness and justice there should be, how much responsibility he puts in the hands of people that can make you, you know, your mind spin as to think of how he rules all of that. In all of that, we can be comforted. This is a perfectly righteous God. And if you doubt it, you look to the cross. You look to the cross at the sheer infinite goodness of God that is manifested that God would die for his enemies. And at least be comforted. That is the being that rules this world. That is the ruler of the world and no other. He has all authority in heaven and earth. It's interesting that this psalm and the next are treated as one psalm because it's really an acrostic that spans both psalms. But you do see that after all this he says in Psalm 9, he breaks into this cry in Psalm 10, Why? Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? And scholars talk about how jerky, in a sense, this psalm is of of the destruction of the wicked and yet the keeping of the righteous and the praise of God and then ask why. And you think, where is this guy's head? And I think, it's right here where ours is. (laughs) Right where we experience every day. It's just always and ever horrific and wonderful, horrific and wonderful. We groan. We ache for God to bring all things to restoration, yet we thank him for the manifestations of his goodness in creation and culture and society. And yet we grieve over the evil that we see. And so you'll see this in reading uh, through especially Psalm 9 and 10 together to, to think everything is in here. And that's really the way the Psalms are as a whole. They just have all of life crammed in all the emotions of life. But he is anticipating this glorious time where God will bring all things to final justice. So this interplay of justice and judgment and deliverance is seen in this passage because we have this first point that he judges the the wicked, but then he delivers his people and they go together. I want to give an illustration of this. If you've read any of the material from International Justice Mission, it's a mission committed to uh, rescue people exploited by slavery or sexual exploitation or abuse. And regularly, when you read of their stories, and one of his books that I've read basically covers one long event in Malaysia that occurred where they had to 
work on the national government, to work down to the local government because the local government was not stopping this sexual exploitation uh, of children. One of the men had to uh, hazard his own life over a period of months to befriend and win the confidence of the people who ran this horrible place. There were white collar professional people coming through the United States to that place. And in the end, he convinced this man of something that was not going to happen, but all of those children got on a bus and drove out of that place by God's grace and never went back. But what else happened? Those men were arrested and went behind bars forever. The two have to happen at the same time. We know that again and again. Sometimes people have to be killed in order for innocent people to be released. And that's caught up here because the the psalmist is crying out to God as one who himself is oppressed, as one who is suffering at the hands of enemies. And there's no way for him to be rescued from enemies unless God does something to the enemies. And there's that in this world as a whole. And so there's this anticipation of our deliverance uh, in that final day because there is judgment as well. Verse 9 actually should start in this way, that instead of just the Lord is a stronghold, he judges the peoples with uprightness so that the Lord is a stronghold. There's this little uh, letter there that is left out of our translation. Or another translation has, consequently, because he judges all things. Because, even later it gets even more serious in verse 12, he who avenges blood is mindful of those who are suffering that Blood and does not forget the cry of the afflicted. You see how that goes together. He can't, he, he can't meet the cry of the afflicted without being mindful and the avenger of blood. And that just makes me a bit weak <laughs> to think of who God is and what he must do to restore righteousness in this world. But when it says stronghold here, it can also be translated a haven. In fact, one translation is he's a haven for the broken person. And this would certainly include those who, who seek God but are outwardly, physically or socially or economically or politically oppressed but also personal brokenness, personal relational brokenness and suffering, personal, relation, personal physical suffering and pain, injury, debilitating disease. The Lord is enthroned in order that he might be this haven for the broken. It's wonderful that he... Uh, connects that throne with being your haven at all times. And the only qualification you have is to be broken. That's it. 
It's like another verse of the hymn we sang. We didn't sing this verse, but it says, the only, uh, uh, the only qualification or the only fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. You say, well, what would make me fit to come to God? Nothing, just do you need him? <laughs> Are you helpless? Are you broken? Then come, find him. He's a haven for you. And those, it says, who acknowledge your name may trust in you. Those who know your name means that they know your name. They acknowledge who you are in verse 10. They put their trust in you. And you are who? This is your name, the Lord, who've not, you've not forsaken those who seek you. See the connection? Your name is the revelation of who you are. And then he describes what your name is. You're the one that doesn't forsake those who seek you. That's your name. And I call on your name, the one who will not forsake me as I am seeking you. Always doing the right thing for us, in us, around us. To support us, as Paul puts it, as you well know, all things work together for good. And he is always this haven for his broken people. And when it says that they seek you in verse 10, it means that they seek their help from you. Even the desire to have him and know him and adore him involves receiving help from him. I'm empty. My life is ultimately pointless without him. I have no point of reference. I have no point at all as a human being. Ultimately, my enjoyment of anything has nowhere to go. If our enjoyment cannot end up in the presence of God, then ultimately our enjoyment is fractured and meaningless. So even in my praise... I've got to have praise. I've got to have it as a meaning, as a human being. So to seek him is to always, in every way, seek to receive from this glorious God. Even as you praise him, you're depending upon him. You're welcoming his grace and mercy and his greatness and his beauty into your life to fill you once again. We never come to him from the standpoint of strength or giving back in a way to him. We're always receiving, enjoying. Sustaining joy can only be found in him. Even my adoration is a need. I must have him to adore. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Paul says, do all to the glory of God. Life can only be truly lived out under that consuming purpose to seek this God, to adore him, to love him. Because as Paul says, from him and through him and to him are all things. Well, he's this glorious haven for his people. Um, that's why, and I've really anticipated and, and declared this third point that we declare his praise flowing, you see, from all of our meditation about him being on the throne, all of our meditation of how he acts for us and protects us. And even when we feel physically unprotected, he is still active to form us into the image of Christ always. He never leaves our side. And in the end, all things will be made new and we'll be fully 
restored. And that's why we then in the final place can pray and seek his deliverance. He says in verse 13, you're the one who lifts me. And he means here, you're the one who can lift me up. You're the one who will lift me up. Like the leper who came to Jesus and said, if you're willing, you can heal me. And so as we think of God on his throne and we bring all of our spiritual troubles and our physical and relational troubles, we come to this one whose throne permeates our lives and permeates the earth. You can do these things, Lord. You can continue to rescue me and save me and make me into your image. And so the whole of our life is lived out in this way, you know, of of, of celebrating and acknowledging God is the judge of the whole earth. And within, as the judge of the whole earth, he will rescue his people. We will praise him. We will also cry out, why? And we will seek all good from this great God. I wanted to close just with a little application here. Uh, Particularly about this idea of God's justice in the earth, because as his people, we must manifest that justice in this earth. We, we can't stand apart and admire God in his justice and righteousness from, from a distance and not be involved in it. And let me just mention, for instance, uh, one way, because I've already talked about uh, international justice mission, uh, our own Bill and Judy Bird's daughter, Stephanie, is the executive director of Unbound, which is a Fort Worth ministry that in multiple ways is fighting human trafficking and exploitation. You can look them up, you can get involved, you can give, you can be involved in justice immediately in our city through this uh, place that, that uh, th- through this ministry that Stephanie is executive director of. We could name dozens of ways, brothers and sisters, that we can manifest in this world. And sometimes it is truly the case that unbelievers are more concerned about justice and righteousness and bringing healing and hope in this world than it appears Those who name the name of Christ. If there's anyone that should be involved and concerned and broken hearted. It must be us because we have the spirit of God who is said to be that. Oh Lord. May the living water of your spirit flow forth from my life and heal me and make me like yourself. And I want to lend a bit of humility at the end because after he says why in verse 1 of chapter 10, do you stand far off? He begins to outline the details of the wickedness of people. And it's easy for us to say, yeah, 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 those people, those people, those people. Until you get to Romans chapter 3 when Paul is roping all humanity together under one umbrella We all are sinful before God. We've all turned away from God. And he quotes Psalm 10. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And you think, wait, whose mouth? Your mouth. My mouth. Every human being's mouth. 
We're all sinful before God. And so we must tremble because we realize if left to ourselves, we would be among the wicked. We would be among those who would perish forever, whose name would be blotted out. Why did he remember us? Why did he draw you? Why in the words of the hymn, well, we were enemies, he revealed his grace to us. Why? We were enemies like everybody else. We, we hated him like everybody else. Why did he show mercy to us? That's why there's such an element of mercy and compassion in the New Testament. Because though you may have always been religious, even in a Christian home, or, or you're from a starkly pagan background, it doesn't matter. We've all come from the same place of sinful rebellion against God. We all need the same shed blood of Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we all by nature are children of wrath. We all by nature belong to wrath. We're in the family of those who, who, upon whom wrath should fall. All of us. He's speaking there to Christians. <laughs> this is what we were before God found us and had mercy on us and had grace in our lives. But listen how Paul applies this in this one place and we'll be done. So in Titus 3, he says, be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. That means Christian or non-Christian. Avoid quarreling with even unbelievers. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, he could be saying, because Jesus is like that, but this is what he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He's saying, you stand only by mercy and mercy should exude from your life to those who are broken, even to the most evil of people that God would manifest his righteousness and goodness in you. May God do this. May we be set free to love as God loves. Let us pray. Lord, bless us, we pray. Make us to know to believe, to exult in your righteousness and throne in this world and know that, Lord, all will be made right and perfect in the end and even now, through every aspect of your providence, as horrible as you allow human beings to be toward one another, even now, that, Lord, you have righteous reasons for doing so whether it's warning, whether it's actually rescuing in a, in a physical way. Lord, however things are happening, there is some aspect of your righteousness that is working and your throne pervades the world. May this give us hope in the midst of confusion. May this give us, Lord, a sense that in the narrow lens of things, there are so many horrible things, but in the wide angle lens of what you are ultimately going to accomplish in this world, everything is in the hands of our mighty God for good. Give us this grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.